Hi everyone, I am Aditi Ranade again and ECS BCP student chapter is back with another interesting episode. This was the most awaited episode and I am really really excited to hear it. The guest of today's episode is Dr. Krishna Iyer who is the in-charge principal of Bombay College of Pharmacy and the professor of pharmaceutical chemistry at BCP. He holds a PhD in pharmaceutical chemistry from the University of Minnesota and he has received the best paper award in the field of pharmacology and clinical pharmacology for isolation of different animal liver xanthine oxidase containing fractions and determination of kinetic parameters for xanthine in 2010. The host of today's episode is Yash Shah. He is final year BPharm student and the former communication head of our chapter. So let us hear to this wonderful conversation and learn something new today. Good evening Dr Krishna yes sir a very warm welcome to you we would first love to hear about your journey in pharmacokinetics and how it has been so far so uh, very interesting uh, when i finished my uh, bpharm uh, i joined for mpharm at uh, udct which was uh, now called ict and i joined the mpharm in what was referred to at that time as medicinal and natural products program uh, and my guide was dr vasudevan uh, whose area of uh, research was pharmacognosy after finishing my masters uh, i applied to university of minnesota for my phd and at that time uh, the department uh, which offered the phd was labeled department of medicinal chemistry and pharmacognosy okay and and therefore my mpharm degree in pharmacognosy was a valid qualification for applying to that program so uh, after joining that program uh, my initial interest was actually uh, in plant tissue culture okay and uh, uh, a gentleman named uh, dr e steba was very very well known for plant tissue culture of medicinal plants was one of the faculty members there and uh, i was interested in doing phd with him however at that time he had only about a year and a half or two left for retirement so he said ke you know i may not be able to take you because typically a phd program is about 3 and a half to 4 years uh, uh, and he said i may i will not be able to take you because i am due for retirement so at that point i really was in a quandary what to do and and uh, at the same time i had got a teaching assistantship at uh, university of minnesota and as far as uh, that job was concerned i was put under dr rory remel uh, who was uh, whose area was uh, uh, drug metabolism while working with him for about a month and a half i started to like him so as soon as uh, dr steber said no to me i immediately asked dr remel hey, would it be okay if i do phd with you and dr remel at that time I just joined the department uh, about a year and a half or two ago, and he was just had taken his first PhD student, uh, whose name was Dr. Michael Sins, and I was his second PhD student at that time. So he agreed, and uh, so I started doing uh, drug metabolism research. Uh, you know, a, a very interesting subject at that time because in our BPharm program, uh, drug metabolism was covered only for a lecture and a half at that time. so not knowing too much about drug metabolism i took a risk at that time 
that I'll work with this uh, very young faculty. Uh, and I think I made the uh, perfect decision at that time because uh, when you work with a young faculty who is just starting his career, then what happens is uh, you get everything from the uh, from the from the guide because the guide works with you in the lab because he's also starting his research program and his career. So I got a lot of learnings from Dr. Ramel. And one of the things he told me at that time is that in addition to drug metabolism, if you want to be a good drug metabolism person, you should also take courses in pharmacokinetics. And that course was offered in the pharmaceutics department at that time. And the two teachers who were teaching that course was uh, Dr. Cheryl Zimmerman and Dr. Ronald Saucher. Uh, interestingly, it turned out Dr. Zimmerman was the wife of my guy, Dr. Remel. And therefore, as soon as he said, I would take that lecture, that series of lectures, uh, you, know, you know, I said, okay, no problem at all. But it was, it was tremendous pressure for me because uh, I was, uh, anything I did in that class would get back to my guide very quickly uh, because of that information network that they had. Okay, but I think that was the best decision I took. And I really, really enjoyed that class of pharmacokinetics taught by Dr. Zimmerman and Dr. Sauchak to the point that I still, if I sit down today, I remember all those lectures and all those examples uh, both of them used to give while teaching this class. So that's how my journey uh, began in pharmacokinetics, actually as an add-on course uh, in the SUTIX department, although I was in the medicinal chemistry and cognitive program. And uh, uh, very interestingly, down the road, uh, DMPK started to be talked about in one breath. So rarely do you find anybody say drug metabolism. Usually it is drug metabolism and pharmacokinetics. So this advice of my guy, Dr. Remel, uh, you know, really uh, paved the way for me become becoming what is called the DMPK scientist. And after finishing also at uh, Minnesota, I went for a postdoc at University of Washington. And University of Washington has a very interesting way uh, they have designed they, they have designed the department at that time. Everybody in the farm chem department used to work in drug metabolism. Okay, and everybody in the suitics department uh, used to work mostly in pharmacokinetics. And every person in farm chem partnered with one person in suitics to form that pair of DMPK. So when I did my postdoc, it was with uh, Dr. Uh, William Prager, who at that time used to work with Dr. Rene Levy in the pharmaceutics department. So my journey of DMPK continued there. And uh, my PhD was mostly on this enzyme called xanthine oxidase and prodrugs. While when I went to Washington, I started getting into the cytochrome P450 and mass spectrometry, okay, to, to learn about cytochrome P450. My second postdoc was actually application of DMPK in an industry setting at uh, Park Davis Research Center in Ann Arbor. Where interestingly, uh, I did a postdoc with my PhD colleague, Dr. Michael Sins, who had actually finished at Minnesota and gone directly to Park Davis. So then, as soon as I finished that uh, program at Park Davis, I returned back to India and joined the uh, MedChem department uh, or PharmChem department at BCP. And uh, since then, I've been teaching drug metabolism and pharmacokinetics. So BCP is probably one of the only colleges, maybe in India, where uh, kinetics has been taught by a person in farm chem department. And that is only because I had this experience in DMPK. Although very interestingly, uh, two 
faculty of uh, ours, uh, Dr. Nagar Shankar from the Sudix department and Dr. H.P. Tipness, our former principal, who was actually in the PharmChem department, have actually written a book together on pharmacokinetics. But uh, Dr. Nagar Shankar was very kind that when I joined the department, she allowed me to teach pharmacokinetics, uh, even though I was in the PharmChem department. Before I came to Bombay College of Pharmacy, it was taught by Dr. Ratnesh uh, Srivastav, uh, who was in the pharmaceutics department. And both of us have a slightly different view of pharmacokinetics. Dr. Srivastav is very hardcore mathematics oriented and teaches pharmacokinetics from a mathematical perspective, while I am less mathematically inclined and I teach pharmacokinetics more from the application perspective. Uh, and that is a subtle difference in the way we both approach the same uh, subject. And ironically, now, uh, when I get called for lectures and called for invited talks, this is usually for either talking about drug metabolism and more so for talking about pharmacokinetics. So in that regard, I thank uh, Dr. Remel, Dr. Zimmerman, Dr. Ron Sachak, uh, who have been instrumental in teaching me pharmacokinetics and then continued that at Washington where Dr. Rene Levy, uh, Dr. Kenneth Thummel, uh, and uh, I'm trying to recall who else was there at that time, all actually added on to the kinetics knowledge that I've got till now. So that's how my journey began, and that's how I've been teaching kinetics at Bombay College of Pharmacy. Yes, sir. We are uh, indeed delighted to have faculty with such a diverse and wide experience. And... It was really inspiring and amazing, sir. So, sir, moving on to the next question. Uh, you have been to US for pursuing the PhD, as you just said. So, sir, can you share your experience of learning you had in US, like, specifically? And, uh, uh, yeah, that would be my question, sir. So, I think uh, the biggest difference in the PhD program, if you look at how it is done in India... Uh, versus how it is done in the US is that uh, uh, since uh, till a few years ago, the PhD program in India was purely research-based. So the minute you join the PhD program, there were no uh, courses that you had to sit for or no classes you had to take. You just started doing research and finish your research over your four or five years and then uh, you know wrote your thesis and you got your degree. So in a sense, all your learning, as far as somebody teaching you, stopped as soon as you finished your MPharm, and very little learning occurred in the master, uh, PhD level, other than the uh, the other than you know information related to the PhD research that you are doing. The PhD program in the US is slightly different in that the PhD program also includes a lot of coursework that you have to complete, and in addition to that, do research. And that is where the big difference lies. The coursework that you take as part of the PhD program is conducted at a level much higher than a master's program. And also it's very applied. So not only do you learn new information, which is of a more in-depth nature, but you also learn to integrate and apply those knowledges across disciplines. Okay, for example, something you learn in PharmChem, you might want to use it in SUTEX or you might want to use in organic chemistry uh, and, and or something you learn in uh, chemistry, you might use in cell biology or biochemistry. So this type of applied and cross talk between the 
information that you have is the crux of the PhD program as it is done in the US. And that is the big difference, okay? Uh, now, in addition to that, because there is more uh, research funding uh, in general for uh, uh, in the US, you'll find that many of the universities are very well equipped, uh, a little better equipped than the universities that you have in India, okay? Uh, and, and therefore, the research also is in a, at a little a more cutting edge uh, as far as uh, uh, what is being done, okay? Although this gap is now being reduced at a very fast pace because of, you know, in the Indian government and the corporates also putting money into research in the Indian uh, in the context. But for a while, you found that this was a big gap, the instrumentation and the money for doing research, at least in the academic setting, was much less in India, except for, uh, you know, some of the research centers like Indian Institute of Science or TIFR or the IITs, where you got a lot of money. Uh, the other academic institutions lacked a lot of instrumentation and infrastructure to do research of a much of a higher end. It's not that they didn't do research, but not at the cutting edge. Now this gap is much less, okay? But still the difference is still that coursework. And that is where uh, doing a PhD in the US, I feel, at least my personal opinion, gives you a lot more exposure and makes you a more rounded scientist than what you would be if you did PhD in India. So that, that is a big difference. The coursework and the and the how to learn, how to apply the information that you have to different scenarios. So so uh, so that is a big difference. Uh, yes, sir. So according to uh, this, sir, uh, any particular changes you expect uh, in future near ahead uh, in the education system of in India uh, regarding the research and. Uh, uh, development in uh, pharmaceutical fields, uh, according to you? So not See, if you look at the new uh, education policy that the government of India is bringing forth, uh, they are actually incorporating much of these things which have been in practice elsewhere in the world. So the new education policy envisages uh, education not uh, to be of the type which, is, which it has been till now, kind of like a little box uh, only pharmacy, another box which is only engineering, another box which is only, say, medicine. Uh, the new education policy aims to bring in this uh, multidisciplinary research and multidisciplinary information uh, sharing. And that will bode very well, uh, you know, a few years down the road when the system sets in. So now our education system will also have some of the features that has made, uh, you know, research uh, much better in other countries than what it has been in India. So I, I foresee that you know, maybe five or 10 years down the road, many of the students who enter one program may, may also have a chance to learn things which are normally taught in another program, but which is also used to this program. For example, let us say I'm doing pharmacy. Uh, I might be interested in doing something in the subject of economics and uh, that allows me to do what is called pharmacoeconomics or outcomes research. Uh, I might also be in a pharmacy school, but I might also be interested in doing a lot of cell biology and molecular biology at a higher level than what it has been done in a pharmacy program. So now I'll be able to do this crosstalk between you know hardcore mall bio, cell bio departments and pharmacy programs, you know, joining together so that uh, you get this cross training. So I, I do uh, feel very positive 
that down the road with the new education policy, this multidisciplinary research, this choice-based you know, selection of topics as part of your BPharm program or MPharm program or PhD will always bode well and we'll learn to be much better innovators, we'll learn to be much better entrepreneurs and we'll learn to be you know, uh, researchers of the type who will find new ways rather than always following things uh, which are done elsewhere. Okay, so this out of box thinking and innovative thinking will come into play as soon as this uh, NEP kind of sets itself uh, up. Okay, and, and gets established all over India. So I, I look forward very positively to way a pharmacy education will be changing down the road. Truly, sir, we all expect and hope that such positive changes to come into action. And your guidance and opinions have been really much needed thing and they are really valuable for students as young generation and becoming the new future of our country, sir. So we really appreciate your opinion, sir. Moving on, sir. Any research experience of yours you would like to share with us? You feel that is in particular really valuable and we all should know about it. Uh, see, the one thing I've always been telling all my master's students and my PhD students is that when you do research, the end result uh, is of less importance than the journey. Okay. So when you do research, when you do each and every experiment, when you do each and every step, uh, try and think through what you're doing and try and investigate in depth whether the experiment that you're doing has been designed correctly whether you have put adequate controls. Uh, tomorrow, uh, will the experiment be repeatable by anybody else? Tomorrow, when you write down the procedure or document what you did, have you done it in a way that anybody else can come in and repeat it and get exactly the same results? Okay. So this journey of how to set up experiments, both in terms of the logic of experimentation and also understanding all the instruments that you're going to use while doing that research and understanding what are the advantages of a certain instrumentation? What are the limitations of a certain instrumentation? How you are doing the experiment, where you're doing little things like pipetting correctly, whether you're making buffers correctly, whether you're determining pHs correctly. All these little things are more important than the final result of the experiment. Okay. So I find many times when students come into the lab that they're more interested in accomplishing some experiment to get a certain result. That is not how research is. Research is never to get a certain result. Research is directed towards having a hypothesis where there's some sort of expectation of a certain result, but it is not driven to get that result. Okay. So whenever you do your experiments, always double check, keep rechecking whether you have done things correctly. Because what happens many times is when you get results based on what your logic is or what your instinct tells you, you never go back and double check whether things were done correctly. It's only when things don't work out the way you want that you feel, hey, did I do the experiment correctly or not? And then you start checking it. And that is the biggest pitfall of research. When you get results that you expect, we tend to not double check and see whether we have done things correct. It's only when things don't work out the way we want that we try and figure out what has gone wrong. But that should not be the way the research is done. Whether the result is what you got, a result that you get is what you want or don't want, that is immaterial. Always make sure you do the experiment correctly. And when you start doing that correctly, you will realize that the fun of research 
is not the final result. It is the way you set up your experiments, where you execute the experiment, where you are able to reproduce those experiments, where you are able to make sure that tomorrow nobody can point fingers at you, whether this was done correctly or incorrectly. That is the fun of research. So I feel the journey of doing experiments, working in the lab, doing things correctly, thinking through what you're doing is more fun actually than the final result. When you do things correctly, invariably the result that you get will be the result that is to be trusted and relied upon and be confident about. And then you can start making interpretations of what is happening and what is not happening. Okay. So always make sure you do the experiment correctly, set up your experiment correctly. And that is always the beauty of research. The fun of research is in doing the experiment correctly and not really in the result that you get. Okay. So that is my advice to all the people who do research. Don't worry about what the result should be. Always worry whether you're doing the experiment correctly, you're doing all the things correctly, so that the result you get is a result which you can trust and rely upon to make conclusions or do analysis of what is happening. Okay. Surely, Thank sir. Uh, yeah. Yeah, that, and that is exactly that we all should uh, agree and follow and your experience uh, will uh, motivate a future researcher and it will act as a beacon of light. And uh, sir, would you like to add something? Were you saying something, sir? No, I just uh, want to tell everybody that whenever you embark on your professional career, like, you know, a pharmacy or a pharmacist, make sure that you never let go of your honesty and integrity, okay? Uh, and that is very, very crucial. Whenever you deal with people, Whenever you do experiments, make sure you never cheat, never lie, never do anything tomorrow that somebody will point finger at you. Okay, In the field of science, especially in the field of academics and in the corporate world where you're a scientist, honesty and integrity is priceless. The day anybody realizes that you cannot be trusted with science or experiments, then nobody will hire you or you'll never progress into a higher enough position where, uh, you know, uh, just because of this behavioral trait that you have. So always, as you go through your many years, there'll be many temptations, okay, uh, to be dishonest, to let go of your integrity, but never do that. If you hang on to your honesty and integrity and continue to do hard work, it'll always pay off in the end, okay? So my, my advice to all the people is, uh, you know, you're in a small world of people who are having a pharmacy background, you do anything wrong, it will quickly spread. And tomorrow you'll have difficulty in establishing yourself in the profession. So always hang on to your honesty and integrity and never let it go. Surely, sir. This advice will be important for future entrepreneurs and uh, future researchers. What's the current uh, scenario, the pandemic? So, so moving on to the next question. As there is a continuing need for increased efforts in uh, evaluation of new chemical entities in terms of their pharmacokinetic parameters as a part of new drug discovery. Is there any new or rapid determination of pharmacokinetic property of new chemical entities, sir, according to you? Uh, no, from an experimental perspective, uh, there is actually no way you can uh, do studies any faster from the perspective of pharmacokinetics. For example, if I want to find out what is happening to a drug, let us say when I give it to an animal model or to a human, then I really cannot shorten the duration of the experiment. I have to give it 
and I have to sample it for a certain amount of time uh, so that I can get the concentration time profile, which I'll be using later to figure out what are the kinetic parameters associated with the drug in that biological uh, model. The speed part, uh, you can enhance by enhancing the analytical methodology. Okay, so uh, the, the, the way things have moved from what it was a few years ago is when we did kinetics, uh, after the experimentation was done, typically the analysis would occur by HPLC. Okay, and HPLC in that sense is very time consuming. A typical run would be about 10 to 15 minutes. And let us say you have about 100 samples to analyze. You can imagine it'll take two and a half, three days to do the analysis. The biggest change that we have seen in terms of the speed at which you can generate PK data is the invent of, uh, advent of LCMS. So now with uh, HPLC and LCMS, the same thing which used to take two, two and a half, three days with a lot of you know, investment in how to prepare the sample so that there is no in in interference, that has been circumvented to a great extent by the introduction of LCMS. So now typically uh, analysis can be done much faster and with much more, uh, you know, uh, what do you call a sensitivity, uh, lower limits of detection and a lot of selectivity because of mass spectrometry. So that is where uh, the change has occurred or, or, and it is continuously occurring. In that is LCMS methodology with advent of even HRMS now, not only allows you to do you know, kinetics quickly, that in terms of the analysis, but also allows you to do a lot of things like you know, metabolite ID as you're doing your you know, uh, sample analysis. So the big change I feel in terms of the area of pharmacokinetics is the introduction of analytical methods, which are much more uh, sensitive, much more specific, very accurate, very precise, and they work very, very quickly. Uh, uh, typically nowadays you'll find a sample is run in three or four minutes, where uh, at one time it should take 20 minutes, 30 minutes per sample. So things are very, very fast. In addition to that, a lot of experimental designs where you can you do what is called as, you know, a kinetics of two or three drugs at the same time by, you know, giving the drug as a cocktail or giving it individually, then mixing the samples to do a cocktail analysis uh, because of the power of uh, LCMS, MS has also made kinetic studies slightly faster or much faster than what it was before. Now, in addition to all of these things, a lot of in vitro methodologies for predictive pharmacokinetics uh, parameters, like how to predict volume of distribution, or how to predict clearance of a drug in a human based on in vitro data or animal data has also helped in making kinetics move a little faster, okay? Further, a lot of in silico methods have come in and there are a lot of software programs now where you can feed in in vitro data that you have generated in the laboratory and you can use that to predict maybe in vivo PK in an animal model or a human, okay? So these have also helped in developing this area of pharmacokinetics to a much greater extent than what it was many few years ago. So these are the, the, the big in things, okay? Further, you have to also realize the field of transporters has also come in now. Uh, previously, when we used to talk DMPK, we typically talked only about enzymes which did metabolism. Now we also talk about transporters which take drugs from one place to another, how a drug can, you know, uh, how drug-drug how interactions which are transporter ways can affect the way drugs work. So those things have also started becoming part of pharmacokinetics now, what we call as issues related to transporters. Okay, so a lot of things are happening and even modeling methods because of computational power 
now we have physiologically based pharmacokinetic modeling or we have what you call as pkpd modeling where you kind of integrate kinetic data with dynamic data so those are all the hot areas of research which are now there which were not there to that an extent when i was doing my phd okay so the big areas now from a pk perspective or related to pk perspective are pkpd modeling and physiologically based pharmacokinetic modeling and understanding uh, transporters and their role in overall pharmacokinetics and doing also what is called as uh, a drug drug interaction at the level of not only drug drug the metabolizing enzymes but also at the level of transporters so these are things which have come in now which are part and parcel of this area of pharmacokinetics wow sir that information you just shared is really uh, interesting and was uh, highly moving we can all agree that the world is uh, moving on a fast pace when it comes to research and uh, innovation moving on to the next question sir of this podcast so uh, as we know pharmacokinetics uh, is a study of adme basically adsorption distribution metabolism and excretion of a dr- drug so so if a new drug fails which uh, might um, occur very rarely nowadays uh, because of uh, new innovation and uh, strict laws and um, research and r&ds but if a drug a new drug fails or does not live up to its expectations sir which one of the adme processes is typically the reason for the failure of the drug most of the time sir according to you okay uh, if you look uh, historically uh, around 1990s uh, if you were to look why drugs failed uh, the percentages were about uh, 40% related to uh, pharmacokinetic issues or what you call as dmpk issues and because of that lot of companies invested in lot of these in vitro methods uh, so that you can get a handle on pharmacokinetics to a greater extent during the initial phases of development before the drug ever reached the phase 1 studies and because of all of those uh, things which are incorporated as part of the drug development process in about 15 20 years around uh, you know the beginning of this millennium suddenly the the reason for drug failure because of pharmacokinetics dropped to just about 7 to 8% and it has kind of remained there to an extent now, among all the aspects uh, of uh, what you call as uh, kinetics that is absorption distribution metabolism and excretion uh, as of today many other uh, times the reason drugs fail is usually related to metabolism or what you call as clearance okay and that is a little more difficult to predict and the reason being uh, animal models uh, are not very predictive of human metabolism because our enzymes are different uh, even though we have uh, uh, human uh, in vitro preparations to help us do what is called as uh, predictions of what would happen when a human is given in a in vivo setting things have gotten a little better but still there's a little gap between the in vitro work versus what happens in vivo especially in related in relation to metabolism and clearance what do you call this the other thing which is also now confounding matters as of today is this issue of transporters which were neglected to a great extent and people didn't understand it because those transport transporters are not very well characterized now over the last few years or maybe 10 15 years the area of transporters has as you know the information in this area of transporters has increased to such a great extent now 
that we are trying to now also understand uh, the reasons of drug failure, which might be related to transporters, which previously people didn't realize why drugs were failing. So uh, absorption is generally less of an issue. Uh, as At the same time, excretion is also less of an issue. It is this between the two, the distribution and metabolism, which tend to be the reason why drugs fail to a greater extent. Okay, so those are the two two, two uh, major areas where still uh, our in vitro methods and animal models are not fully predictive of what would happen when the drug actually is given in a clinic. Wow, sir, that was quite uh, enlightening information. So, uh, sir, uh, can you elaborate on the role of pharmacokinetics in development of uh, COVID drugs? Uh, it, uh, as a follow-up question of the previous one, sir. Uh, okay, so, see, the, the thing is, uh, as of moment, uh, there seems to be no drug uh, in a real sense which was developed for COVID. Okay. So if you look at all the drugs which have been kind of tried or are being tried, are drugs which are already there and which were being used for other purposes. For example, if you look at Remdesivir or Favipravir, their initial uh, development was not for COVID, but they were already there for treating something like you know Ebola or other RNA virus infections. Okay. So in that regard, uh, no new drug as of now has been actually developed purely with COVID in mind, starting from scratch, okay? And therefore, uh, till the time we, we find a drug which is exclusively, uh, you know, targeting COVID, then the next stage of, you know, uh, how good it is, what are its pharmacokinetic parameters, that'll come only later, okay? So, uh, so that question of kinetics uh, being, uh, you know, uh, how, it, how it has helped develop drugs for COVID, is a moot question because at the moment we don't have a drug for uh, for COVID. Okay, if at all we are using some drugs, they are just drugs which are which had been used for other purposes, and there is no data telling that they are they are doing anything great as far as COVID is concerned. So that's why vaccination and social distancing and maintaining your you know uh, safety on your own uh, seems to be the best way to handle COVID as of the moment. There are no drugs technically which reverse or kill the coronavirus and makes things, you know, like we have, for example, a drugs for treating AIDS or something like that, where you have actually a drug which uh, directly affects uh, the HIV virus by interfering with, say, reverse transcriptase activity or protease activity or integrase activity. We don't have anything like that for COVID as of now. So the issue of kinetics uh, uh, properties being an issue doesn't arise because there is no drug yet. That was great, sir. And we are delighted to know that we still need to practice uh, social distancing, wearing masks and uh, using sanitizers whenever it is necessary. I hope that uh, in the near, near future, there might be some drug discovered for COVID too. Uh, yeah. so, so, yes, sir, you were saying something? Yeah, I hope so too. That's what I was saying. I hope so yeah. too. Yeah. So, uh, sir, moving on to the next question. So now we uh, all know a bit about significance of pharmacokinetics. So now my question is to you, uh, what makes you excited about pharmacokinetics the most? What makes excited? Uh, I just, uh, I like uh, the way people over the years 
have try to understand how drugs behave once they enter the body okay uh, at one point uh, it was all trial and error okay so when drugs were discovered or people found some drug working for some you know uh, disease state they should just give different doses then try and figure out which dose is the best without really understanding what actually is happening inside the body okay uh, it's only little later that uh, people started to realize that when you give a drug maybe it has to first reach the blood then once it reaches the blood it has to go to the organ where the target for the drug action is and then when it reaches adequate concentration there that you start seeing effects okay and therefore now as of today uh, we don't talk about certain dose having a certain activity we always talk about certain plasma concentrations of a drug having a certain activity okay and, and that conceptual idea you know which came through and which led to the development of the area of pharmacokinetics for me uh, gets me excited okay in that uh, you know we always now are designing dosage regimens such that uh, very few patients will fall into trouble as well because of giving a drug because of this adequate number of studies that, that we do it also makes me exciting uh, excited to think that with so much knowledge of kinetics that we have as of now we are slowly realizing that whenever you give a drug to a certain a group of people you'll always have a few percentage of people who don't respond as expected because they are not in that uh, uh, mean that you have taken into consideration while de- designing a dosage regimen okay for example uh, when i say uh, a paracetamol 500 mg is to be given for taking care of a headache or say brufen 400 mg is to be taken for taking care of an inflammation i designed that dose of 500 or 400 based on studies that are do in a large population and realizing how on an average way the population behaves but once i have done that when the drug actually comes in the clinic i'll always find that there are few people who are not in that average but who are outliers either they don't respond or they respond too well because they are not in that mean category as you would say and as we have realized more and more that this is norm rather than an exception okay and the reasons for this is many fold okay uh, diet age uh, genetics all contribute to the differences that you see in a population when the same dose of drug is given both in terms of how the people handle the drug and also in terms of how the drug you know causes its effect that means what i mean is from a kinetic sense and versus the dynamic sense okay and as we are, our realization is increasing we are also moving away from what we call a generalized medicine to what is called as precision medicine or personalized medicine okay so now uh, you know the idea is once we understand the kinetics of the drug once we understand the dynamics of the drug then what you have to do now is to include a little bit more of patient information to make sure that the disease state of the patient that the age of the patient the genetics of the patient the ethnicity of the patient other factors related to the patient are also taken into account to see whether you need to modify the dosage regimen for this patient and if you can do that correctly then there will be no person in the world who doesn't respond to the drug that you are given in other words now you have a situation where in some cases 50% of the people don't respond correctly to the drug can you bring that down 
to maybe a few percent, maybe two or three percent if possible. That would be a big leap forward. And part of that journey to making, going from what is called as one dose fits all to personalized or precision medicine involves understanding both the kinetics, dynamics, and the patient factors. So that always makes me excited because kinetics is a big part of personalization of medicine. Okay, how, how we understand how the drug gets absorbed, distributed, and metabolized in, in a person and what are the factors that govern this and can we then, based on the knowledge of the patient, understand how the kinetics will be in that patient rather than in a general, in a more specific sense, rather than in a general sense. So I feel the contribution of kinetics both to, you know, one dose fits all. And now as you move forward to personalized medicine is, 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 is a field, you know, which is so exciting. And that's what makes me uh, always love pharmacokinetics in a sense. Yes, sir. Even uh, I agree that personalized medications are the new future for pharmacokinetics and pharmacy. And the experience that you have shared, sir, uh, I'm pretty sure people listening to this episode of podcast will surely develop a liking towards pharmacokinetics as a subject, sir. Moving on to the next question, sir, as uh, we conclude this amazing and enjoyable session by asking uh, Dr. Krishnan Ayer, sir, would you like to convey uh, any uh, message to our listeners, sir? Yeah, I have just one message. Every subject in this world is interesting and every subject is, you know, what you call it, enchanting. Okay. So when you learn, at least at a BFARM level or at the master's level, don't close your mind to certain subjects because you feel, you know, maybe that is not interesting. You know, I don't feel a drive to it. Almost every subject is as interesting as the other subject. So don't uh, be always open, at least when you're doing BFARM and even when you're doing master's. And don't say, no, I don't like this subject. I, will, I'm, I don't think this is that important. There's nothing like that. So every subject you are taught at BFARM and MFARM, pay attention to all of that and see if you can find what is beautiful in each and every subject. Every subject carries its own little charm and you know can draw you towards it. Okay. Even today, with all of this, tomorrow, if you tell me, you know, would you want to do teach pharmacognosy? I would love to do it. If you tell me teach sutics, I would love to do it. If you tell me teach micro, I would love to do it. Because I feel every subject is beautiful. Okay. And if you have that attitude down the road, it'll really help you grow as a person, grow as a scientist, and grow as a person who can contribute immensely to this profession of pharmacy and the healthcare of both the local area, the nation, and as well as, as the world. Okay, so, so keep your uh, you know, minds open to everything that is being thrown at you and try and grasp everything and don't start shutting down your mind right now towards certain subjects. So keep, keep an open learning attitude. That's, that's my message to everyone. So your message has truly motivated all of us and uh, we will try our best to keep that kind of go when uh, we encounter the subject. And uh, it, it was great to have you, sir. And thank you so much for familiarizing us with your experience and knowledge. You have uh, heightened our understanding pertaining to this field of research, sir. And I'm sure the listeners would have found it informative and uh, engaging too. 
I'm pretty sure after listening to this podcast, undergrads must have added pharmacokinetics to their future perspective. And once again, on the behalf of entire ACS BCP student chapter, I would like to thank you, uh, Dr. Krishnanaya sir, for joining us today. Thank you so much. Thank you. Thank you very much uh, for patiently listening to what I have to say. And thank you for the opportunity. It's been a pleasure. Thank you so much, sir. Uh, it was a pleasure to hear you. Uh, we will definitely keep it in mind, whatever you have said. 